Welcome back to On Quantitative Methods, Psychometrics in Public Service. And today we're going to move from part one, which was basic concepts and measurement, to part two, reliability, which in the Michael Furr text, this is chapter five. And for this lecture, a lot of this is going to be uh, conceptual. Chapter 5 lays out reliability, the conceptual basis, and then in the next lecture we'll move on into some of the different ways in which we're going to estimate reliability. But I'm going to go through uh, a good bit of Chapter 5 here, use some of Fur's examples, and hopefully you can get comfortable with some of the conceptual bases of reliability, how it works, and its importance. So first starts out the chapter by giving you an example of a nurse. So I'm going to read that to you. Imagine that a nurse is asked to measure the lengths of 10 different babies. And imagine that there was some way to know beforehand, but unknown to the nurse, each baby's true length. You could, in theory, compare each baby's measure, measured length with his or her true length. Moreover, you could examine the differences among babies' measured lengths and compare them with the differences among their true lengths. Ideally, you would find good consistency between these two sets of differences. That is, you would hope to find that the differences among the baby's measured lengths were consistent with differences in their actual lengths. That the babies who were measured by the nurse as relatively long were truly relatively long. If this was the case, then you could conclude that the measurement procedure produced length scores that were reliable. So the idea here is going to be that our measures are similar in degree to the underlying attributes. And if the underlying attribute is high, underlying psychological attribute is high, that our measure will also be high. And this is really, as Fur says, the heart of reliability. And that psychological measurement always hinges on the ability to reflect real psychological differences accurately. Fur goes on to say, this chapter introduces classical test theory, which is a measurement theory that defines the conceptual basis of reliability and outlines procedures for estimating the reliability of psychological measures. According to classical test theory, a test reliability reflects the extent to which the differences in respondents' test scores are a function of their true psychological differences as opposed to measurement error. So classical test theory is going to have uh, essentially three components. You're going to have the observed measure, which is going to be denoted throughout the text in this chapter as O. And the observed measure is going to be a function of, is going to equal the true measure plus some measurement error. And the hope is that when we measure things, that the measurement error is really, really low, so that our observed score is essentially equivalent to our true score. And for early on highlights that reliability is not dichotomous. It's not either reliable or not reliable. It's a continuum. And so there's going to be reliable to some degree. 
First says, one useful insight to begin with is that reliability is itself a theoretical notion, just as a psychological attribute such as intelligence is an unobserved feature of a person. Reliability is an unobserved feature of test scores. Furthermore, just as we must estimate a person's level of intelligence, we must estimate a test's reliability. So we're not going to know what the true underlying score is. We're, in this chapter, we're going to talk about uh, the true underlying score as if we did know it to give us a theoretical basis for then how we might estimate reliability in the following chapters. And this chapter is mostly going to focus on classic test theory, although we'll quickly foray into uh, to one other perspective. According to classical test theory, as Fur tells us, reliability derives from observed scores, true scores, and measurement error, as I just mentioned. Observed scores are values that are obtained from measuring a characteristic and a sample of individuals. It's the thing you actually see, the thing you record. In contrast, true scores are the real amounts of that characteristic in that sample of individuals. And again, we're never going to know for sure the true score. It's not going to be observed. We're just going to have our observed score. But for the purposes of thinking about this conceptually, we're going to, again, assume that we know the true test score. And then we're going to build from that, the, the true underlying score. First, as we should note that some experts would object to our relatively simple definition of true score, preferring instead to define true scores more technically as the average score that a participant would obtain if he or she completed the scale an infinite number of times. Alternatively, true scores can be seen as the scores that would be attained if the test or measurement was perfectly precise. That is, if it was unaffected by measurement error. At a practical level, all of these definitions are essentially identical, which is what I'm going to want you to be able to take away from this chapter. Fur goes on to say, considering the concepts of observed scores and true scores, reliability is the extent to which differences in respondents' observed scores are consistent with differences in their true scores. More specifically, the reliability for a measurement procedure depends on the extent to which differences in respondents' observed scores can be attributed to differences in their true scores, as opposed to other often unknown test administrative characteristics or some type of measurement error. First, as the extent to which these other characteristics contribute random noise to the differences in observed scores is referred to as, again, measurement error, or just error, because they create inconsistency between observed scores and true scores. Okay. First says, to evaluate the reliability of scores from any measure, we must estimate the extent to which individual differences in observed scores are a function of measurement error versus the extent to which they are a function of true or real score differences among respondents. And 
First, as one useful way to think about reliability is in terms of signal and noise. That is, in terms of our ability to detect, to detect a signal and the presence of noise. And so, reliability can be thought of as a fraction where you have the signal on top divided by signal plus noise. And the closer the noise is to zero, the more reliable the measure is. Fur goes on to say, reliability depends on two things. The extent to which differences in test scores can be attributed to real, inter, or intra-individual differences. And two, the extent to which differences in test scores are a function of measurement error. As I mentioned earlier, in uh, classical test theory, an observed score is a function of someone's true score, which again, we're not really going to be able to observe in practice, plus error. And to denote this, we have x sub o for observed equals x sub t for true score plus x sub e for error. And for highlights this in an example with self-esteem and showing someone's true score as x sub t in a chart on page 115 and comparing that to the observed score and the difference between the two being the error. And we're going to make the assumption um, that a couple of assumptions about error and specifically, we're going to assume that error occurs as if it is random. In part, as Fur says, this means that measurement error is just as likely to inflate any particular score as it is to decrease any particular score. Because error affects score as if it is random, the inflation and deflation caused by error are independent of the individual's true levels of self-esteem in the example that he's using. That is, Fur says, measurement error can affect someone with a high true level of self-esteem in the same way and to the same degree as it affects someone with a low true level of self-esteem. There are two important consequences of this assumption about error, as Fur tells us. First, Error tends to cancel itself out across respondents. That is, error inflates the scores of some respondents and deflates the scores of other respondents in such a way that the average effect of error across the respondents is zero. The second consequence of the apparent ram randomness of the error is that error scores are uncorrelated with true scores. And this is going to come up uh, several times in this chapter. Um, Fur is going to highlight it for us repeatedly. So, move on to variances in observed scores, true scores, and error scores. As mentioned earlier, as Fur says, reliability reflects the degree to which differences in observed scores are consistent with differences in true scores. Put another way, the reliability depends on the links among observed score variability, true score variability, and error score variability. 
So as you may remember from previous lectures, we learned about variability and variance. And these things are going to show up again in this chapter. Or works through some examples uh, with, uh, with a formula that I'll leave to you to refer to in the text. And he says, in other words, you might expect that observed score variance, the degree to which the observed score varies, should be equal to true score variance plus error variance plus the covariances of true scores and error scores, like with a composite score that we talked about in previous chapter. However, as described above, referencing the book, we assume that error is independent of true scores, which implies that the correlation between error score and true score is zero, and so that second bit of that term is going to go away that was part of the composite variance. And this is going to leave us with the formula S squared sub O, so the variance of the observed scores is going to equal S squared T, the variance of the true scores, plus S squared E, the variance of the errors. Okay, first going to give us four different ways to think of reliability that are all going to be themes on the same idea, but looks at them at slightly different angles so that maybe one of these will click with you better than the other. He says, at one level, the approaches differ only with respect to the methods used to algebraically arrange the terms associated with these variances. At another level, they represent different ways of conceptualizing or characterizing the concept of reliability. One of the, one of the distinctions is whether an approach conceptualizes reliability in terms of proportion of variance or in terms of correlations. So if it's easier for you to think of in terms of variance, that's going to be a choice. Or if it's easier for you to think in terms of correlation, that's going to be a choice. A second distinction is whether an approach conceptualizes reliability in terms of observed scores as related to true scores or observed scores as related to measurement error. And Fur provides a nice uh, figure here that shows statistical basis of reliability in terms of variance and correlations and conceptual basis of reliability from observed scores in relation to true scores or measurement error. And if you're looking at it in terms of variance and with respect to true scores, reliability is the ratio of true score variance to observed score variance. If you're looking at it in terms of proportions of various uh, proportions of variance and observed scores in relation to measurement error, reliability is the lack of error variance. So there's very little to no error variance, more reliable look at it in terms of correlations along the bottom row and you can look at it in terms of correlations with respect to observed scores in relation to true scores and this rely this is reliability is the squared correlation between observed scores and true scores so they're correlation squared and if you want to look at it with respect to correlations and observed scores in relation to measurement error 
Then reliability is the lack of correlation between observed scores and error scores. And for the next little bit, we're just going to elaborate in a little bit more detail that FER provides on each of these four approaches. The first is reliability as the ratio of true score variance to observed score variance. So we're going to use variance and we're going to look at true scores or observed scores compared to in relation to true scores. Probably, as first says, probably the most common expression of reliability is the proportion of observed score variance that is attributable to true score variance. And this is going to be represented by the formula capital R um, sub XX. And again, this is the reliability as the ratio of true score variance to observed score variance. Capital R sub XX is going to equal the variance of the true scores divided by the variance of the observed scores. In this case, as far as says, the size of the reliability coefficient indicates a test reliability. Reliability ranges between 0 and 1 and larger R sub XX values, which is going to stand for reliability, indicate greater psychometric quality. This is the case because as RXX increases reliability, a greater proportion of the differences among observed scores can be attributed to differences among true scores. Notice that if the true score variance is zero, then reliability is zero. That is, a reliability of zero means that everyone has the same true score. This underscores the fact that reliability is intrinsically tied to differences among people. If respondents do not differ in the characteristics being assessed by a test, then the test reliability is zero for those respondents. Next, we look at reliability as a lack of error variance. First, as a second way of conceptualizing reliability is in terms of a lack of measurement error. Reliability can be seen as the degree to which error variance is minimal in comparison with the variance of observed scores. In this case, RxX is going to equal 1 minus the variance of error divided by the variance of the observed scores. Note, as first says, that this fraction of variance of errors divided by variance of observed scores represents the proportion of observed score variance that is a function of variance. Reliability is relatively high when this proportion is relatively small. That is, reliability is high when error variance is small in comparison with observed score variance. Moving on, and Kefir walks through examples uh, that I'm going to gloss over for now, but uh, are, they're helpful and they're consistent throughout this chapter, so I encourage you to look at those. Next, the third way of thinking about reliability uh, is reliability as the squared correlation between observed scores and true scores. 
and this would be reliability rxx is equal to the correlation of observed scores and true scores squared which is denoted by a little r sub ot squared thus reliability in this instance can be seen as the squared correlation between observed scores and true scores once again a reliability of one would indicate that the differences among respondents observed test scores are perfectly consistent with the differences among their true scores a reliability of zero would indicate that the differences among respondents observed test scores are totally inconsistent with the differences among their true scores and fourth fourth way of thinking about reliability that fur provides is reliability as the lack of squared correlation between observed scores and error scores In case where observed scores and error scores are not related they're not correlated And in this case, we would have RxX, the capital R, reliability, that's our sign for reliability, equals 1 minus correlation squared of observed scores and error. And so if observed scores and error are highly correlated, then we have low reliability. If they're correlated at zero, we would have perfect reliability. And in practice, it doesn't play out this way, of course. And in practice, we don't know uh, the true score, as I mentioned. So we're going to go through some ways of estimating this in future lectures. But conceptually, it's useful, I think, in the, in the book highlights to think about what this means at the extremes of the formulas. And Fur puts it like this, perhaps the best way to think about this is to realize that if the correlation between observed scores and errors, R sub OE, is zero, then the reliability will equal one. As the correlation of observed scores with error scores increases, the size of reliability, RXX, will decrease. All right, let me move on to reliability and the standard error of measurement. First says here, although the reliability coefficient is an extremely important piece of psychometric information, for reasons that will become even more apparent in Chapter 7, it does not directly reflect the size of measurement error associated with the test. That is, reliability does not tell us, in test score units, the average size of error scores that we can expect to find when a test is administered to a group of people. As we will see later, the size of measurement error has important applications for interpreting the accuracy of test scores and for computing probabilities of scores in testing and research setting. And what we're going to use for the standard error of measurement is the standard deviation of error scores. So the standard error of measurement is just going to be the standard deviation of error scores. It's going to represent the average size 
of the error scores. The larger the standard error of measurement, as first says, the greater the average difference between observed scores and true scores, and the less reliable the test. In fact, as first says, as we will see later, we will need to estimate the standard error of measurement from an estimate of reliability. We can use reliability to find the standard error of measurement. And the formula that FER provides is the standard error of measurement is equal to the standard deviation of the observed score multiplied by the square root of 1 minus the reliability. So standard deviation of the observed score multiplied by the square root of 1 minus the reliability is going to give us the standard error of measurement. This shows how the standard error of measurement is related to reliability. Notice that if reliability is 1, then the standard error is going to be 0 because 1 minus 1 is 0. Surprise. Okay, and this next section called From Theory to Practice, Measurement Models and Their Implications for Estimating Reliability. Fur says, if you have been paying close attention, you might be aware of an unpleasant fact. The theory of reliability is framed in terms of true scores, error scores, and observed scores. However, the practical, rea the practical reality of measurement is, of course, that we have no way of knowing people's true scores on a psychological variable or the error associated with the test responses. So we're going to have to get creative. As we shall see, as we shall see in the next chapter, chapter 6, classical test theorists are able to estimate a test reliability in several ways. One way is based on giving two versions of the test. Another is based on giving the test twice, and yet another is based on viewing the test's items as essentially themselves being tests. Thus, all methods of estimating reliability are based in some way on administering at least two tests to a sample of respondents. Fur goes on to say the ways in which two or more tests are related to each other are referred to as models, and psychometricians have outlined four such models. A sophisticated understanding of reliability and of estimating reliability hinges on understanding these models. These models are the parallel test model, the tau equivalent test model, the essentially tau equivalent test model, and the congeneric test model. Fur on page 130 provides a nice uh, table here to look at the different assumptions that are needed for each of these tests. The parallel test is going to be the most strict with the most amount of additional assumptions needed. Then tau equivalent is slightly less strict. Then essentially tau equivalent. And then congeneric. And for parallel tests, we're going to uh, need error variances that are equal. 
across the tests. A true score intercept of zero and a true score slope of one. And then as we go to the less strict tests, each one of those requires less of those assumptions. For the tau equivalent, we do away with the equal error variances. For the essentially tau equivalent, we can do away with the true score intercept being zero. And for the congeneric, we can do away with the true score slope being one. Okay, so Fur goes over, gives us an overview of, of these key assumptions. I'll walk you through some, walk you through this section. As a reminder, Fur says one of these basic assumptions is that each test measurement error is random. Earlier in this chapter, we mentioned that two implications of this are that A, for each test, respondents' error scores cancel out across respondents, and B, for each test, respondents' error scores are uncorrelated with their true scores. The basic randomness assumption leads to two additional implications that emerge when you consider two or more tests together. The first is that respondents' true scores on each test are uncorrelated with their error scores on the other tests. The second additional implication is that respondents' error scores on test one are uncorrelated with their error scores on test two. Going beyond these basic assumptions, as first says, and implications, the four models also involve assumptions about the similarity between two or more tests. First, for all the models and tests to be discussed in this section, we focus on tests that are unidimensional, one concept. That is, our discussion deals with circumstances in which two or more tests are measuring a single psychological construct, as you may remember from previous chapters. Second, all four models assume that the true scores are on one test, that the true scores on one test are linearly related to the true scores on another test. In other words, two or more tests might be based on the exact same set of true scores or on true scores that are simple variations of each other. They're linear combinations. Okay, Fur goes on to say, thus far we have discussed the assumptions and implications that are shared among the four models. To review, again, these are A, that each test's error scores are random, so each test's error scores are uncorrelated with that test's true scores, with another test's true scores, and with another test's error scores. B, that the two tests reflect a single construct, and C, that the true scores on the tests are linearly related to each other. Continuing to quote Fur here, the differences among the four models reflect different assumptions about three key issues that we've already alluded to that are related to the similarity of true or error scores from two tests. The first issue is whether two tests have the same error variance. Some models are true only when two tests have the same error variance and other models are true regardless of the similarity between the two test error variance. As they become less strict, as I mentioned earlier, 
you can relax that assumption, but you have to know which model you're using when you do that. The second and third assumptions, as Fur says, involve the nature of the linear relationship between the true scores on the tests. As just discussed, all models can be seen as assuming that. However, the models differ in their assumptions about the intercept and the slope values in this relationship. Some models assume that the intercept is zero, whereas others do not make this assumption. In addition, some models make the assumption that the slope is one, whereas others do not. To summarize so far, as Fur says, we can differentiate the four basic models in terms of their assumptions about the equality of error variance and about the nature of the linear relationship between true scores. In turn, we can differentiate them in terms of their implications that flow from these assumptions. So let's talk a little bit more about these models. The first is parallel tests. Two tests meet the criteria for being parallel if all of the basic assumptions from classic test theory are true for each test and if the following three additional assumptions are true. One, the two tests have the same level of error variance. Two, the intercept linking the true scores on the two tests is zero. Three, the slope linking the true scores on the two tests is one. Parallel tests, you need all three of those assumptions. Fur says whether two tests are parallel has important implications for estimating reliability. According to classic test theory, the correlation between parallel tests is equal to reliability. So, if you can make these three additional assumptions, the correlation between the tests is equal to the test reliability. Thus, for parallel tests, there are several well-known methods of estimating reliability in real-life test situations. These include test-retest, alternate forms, split-half. As we discuss in the next chapter, such methods are valid only if they are performed on tests that meet criteria for being parallel, all three of these additional assumptions. If those methods are used for tests that are not parallel, then they produce inaccurate estimates of reliability. Okay, tau equivalent and essentially tau equivalent tests. Two tests meet the criteria for being tau equivalent if all of the basic assumptions from classic test theory are true for each test and if the following two additional assumptions hold true. The two intercept, excuse me, the intercept linking the true scores on the two tests is zero, and the slope linking the true scores on the two tests is one. However, tau equivalent tests do not assume that two tests have the same level of error variance. Therefore, compared with parallel tests, the criteria for tau equivalent tests have criteria that are less strict. Similarly, 
If two tests meet the criteria for being essentially tau equivalent, if all of the basic assumptions from classic test theory are true for each test, and if only one additional assumption holds true, which is the slope linking the true scores on the two tests as is one. So for tau equivalent, you can also drop the assumption of the intercept being zero. This verse says, because the equivalent, excuse me, because the essentially tau equivalent model is more general, see here, less strict, and it is the basis of the most common index of reliability, which we'll get to. It will be illustrated more concretely moving forward. And here for references table 5.5, where you can see this laid out a little bit more carefully. The fact that the assumptions are somewhat less restrictive as first says, as compared with parallel tests, has important implications for estimating reliability. For essentially tau equivalent and for tau equivalent tests, the correlation between the observed scores on essentially tau equivalent tests is not a valid estimate of reliability. Fortunately, as first says, as we shall see in the next chapter, there are different methods for estimating reliability under conditions of essential tau equivalence or tau equivalence. This shows the importance of being aware of the various models we are discussing in this section. So, based on the assumptions that you think you have with your test, it's going to have important consequences for how you're going to calculate reliability. If you don't have parallel tests, you cannot use the correlation of the two tests to measure reliability. Cone generic tests final model that we discuss is the cone generic model, which is the least restrictive of those summarized. The cone generic model makes only the basic assumptions of classical test theory. The assumption that true scores on test 1 are linearly related to true scores on test 2 and and as we mentioned earlier in the section, we focus on situations in which both tests reflect the same construct. As a pair, the two tests are unidimensional. There are no additional assumptions for the Kong generic model. So we just need the basic assumptions of classical test theory. Fur goes on to say, the true scores on two Kong generic tests are related such that we're both A and B, that is the slope, uh, the intercept and the slope, may take any value. This relation implies that the two sets of true scores are perfectly correlated with each other, but it has no additional implications for the similarity of true scores or observed scores across the two tests. Note that this relatively complex link between true scores, so true scores are going to be perfectly correlated, but they're going to have to be combined in a linearly way, in a linear way. This has two important implications, uh, as also congeneric tests are the least restrictive. 
On one hand, it means that a pair of test items is more likely to fit a congeneric model than to fit the other three models. On the other hand, as Fur says, our options for estimating reliability are relatively limited for congeneric tests. To be able to do reliability for congeneric tests, we're going to need confirmatory factor analysis, or CFA as it's referred to in the book, and uh, we'll get there in chapter 12. Also be able to use confirmatory factor analysis for tests with correlated factors as well. Fur talks a little bit about domain sampling theory, which will come up again a little later in chapter 13 for generalizability theory, but just know it exists for now. All right, in summary, uh, in this chapter, we have examined the theory of reliability from the perspective of classical test theory. This is the most well-known, and it serves as the basis for many psychometric evaluations of psychological tests. As a reminder, classical test theory rests on a few fundamental assumptions about test scores and the factors that affect them. As we've described, as the book describes, and we've described in this lecture as well, Classical test theory is based on the assumption that observed scores on a test are a simple additive function of true scores and of measurement error. In addition, classical test theory, as Fur tells us, rests on the assumption that measurement error occurs as if it is random. The randomness assumption has several implications. Again, for example, error is uncorrelated with true scores, error averages to zero, and error on one test is uncorrelated with error on another test. These assumptions, as Fur says, have important implications for the nature of variability among test scores. As this book has emphasized, the meaning of psychological measurements is tied closely to the need to detect and quantify differences among people. Thus, variability among observed scores is the sum of true score variability and error variability. That is, the differences among people's observed scores arise from differences in their true scores and differences in the degree to which error affects their responses. From this perspective, as Fur goes on to say in the summary, reliability reflects the links between observed scores, true scores, and error. And there are at least four ways to conceptualize the reliability. We can look at it in terms of variance or correlation, and we can also look at it as the ratio of true scores to observed scores or um, to lack of error variance. Reliability can also be seen in terms of consistency and correlations. It is the degree to which observed scores are correlated with true scores it can be seen as the degree to which observed scores are uncorrelated with error scores. Again, looking at it from correlations as opposed to variance. We also talked about the standard error of measurement. Um, and let's see. So this has laid out the theoretical basis of reliability. Um, hopefully it's not too abstract for you. I suggest working back through the examples that Fur provides in a little bit more detail if it's not clicking from this lecture. Um, and I look forward to the next lecture where we'll talk about how 
to make empirical estimates of reliability. Thanks for listening.